Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. Dr. Santosh Schrau, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, hosts this podcast with support from Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. Today on Integrative Oncology Talk, we'll be speaking with Dr. Debu Tripathi, a professor of medicine and chair of the Department of Breast Medical Oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. His clinical research focuses on the evaluation and development of new therapies in breast cancer, specifically growth factor receptor pathway targeting and biomarkers that predict sensitivity and resistance. Dr. Tripathi has published numerous original lab and clinical research articles in breast cancer and serves on several editorial boards, study sections, and societies. He is editor-in-chief of Cure Magazine. In the past, he was president of the American Society of Breast Disease and the Society for Integrative Oncology. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Tripathi about the intersection of integrative oncology and conventional care and how to advance research in integrative oncology. Hey, Debu, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you? Thank you. Very good. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you have a really fascinating career history and you know exciting work that you're doing, and you're really one of the key players in our field in integrative oncology, being um, a leader in the field of breast oncology, but also a leader in integrative oncology. I'm curious, how did you have and develop an interest in integrative oncology? Where did that, where did that come from, and how did you start... Uh, bringing that into your into your research and your career in general. My, my initial uh, involvement with science and medicine was at a very scientific level. I was actually uh, working on a molecular biology project to turn off the HER2 oncogene. Uh, but at the time, I actually got introduced to uh, a top-notch scientist by the name of Helene Smith, who was a well-known cytogeneticist and uh, but also very involved in Tibetan medicine. And she herself used Tibetan medicine and acknowledged that there was very little evidence uh, to support its use. But she felt very strongly that it worked for her. It resonated with her at a philosophical level. So she urged me to actually write a grant to the California Breast Cancer Research Program, which was just getting started. And that they actually had some funding for innovative projects. And we applied to study Tibetan medicine in women with advanced breast cancer. And I realized at that moment that uh, there really is a whole world of uh, medicine that is practiced in a totally different framework uh, that is passed on through experiential trial and error, uh, in some cases, texts and written material, but just has never been subject to the same type of, quote, Western medicine rigor. And and I felt that while it's not going to be possible to study everything in the usual way that we study biomedical approaches that uh, there was a way forward and uh, having submitted and actually gotten that grant even though it was a very small grant it, it did allow us to do a small pilot study and then i realized that when i communicated with my patients about uh, 
different approaches that uh, were not uh, down the conventional road, that I had a different connection with patients, particularly those who at heart believed that standard Western medicine wasn't offering everything they needed. And that even rose, uh, elevated my, my awareness and interest in, in, in this. And so it, it's been a combination of people I've met, uh, the need that uh, needs to be bridged, and the fact that there are uh, uh, clearly methods that can be adapted for us to understand and integrate this into our daily practice. I feel like there are now probably more than ever, a lot of people who are not necessarily 100% focused on integrative oncology or integrative medicine, who are researchers and have found an interest in various aspects of integrative oncology, whether it's lifestyle or natural products, et cetera, uh, that are really starting to push this field forward. I'm, I'm curious, how do you feel like the perception of integrative medicine and integrative oncology has changed in, in the last 20 or 30 years? I think there is more acceptance of it in the scientific community. It has now joined the, uh, the world of uh, standard methodologic investigation, uh, but it's certainly not there yet. And I think for a lot of uh, physicians that practice clinical medicine without doing research and those that perhaps are entering into the research field, they recognize that they have to be ultra-focused in what they're doing, which, which is true to some extent. In order to, to succeed in the area, you do really have to um, ha be thematic in, in what you do. And it is sort of a diffusion of energy to try to take on integrative medicine. So I think that there are a limited number of people that either have the bandwidth or have the patience or, to be honest with you, are willing to sacrifice some other element of their career to embark on this different pathway. So th I think there's a lot of uh, barriers and activation levels that have to be met for an individual, uh, wh whether they're a clinician or an investigator, to, to move in that direction. I think it has been facilitated some recently by different associations that focus on this, uh, uh, different funding mechanisms, but there's a long ways to go. I mean, you mentioned funding. I see that as a huge barrier. You know, when I think of what we're doing in oncology in terms of drug development, you know, it's exploding. And a lot of that is is powered by pharmaceutical companies, immuno-oncology, for example, drug development. I find that it's, it's very hard for us to keep up uh, with all the changes in conventional care in integrative oncology. You know, now... You know, there's a whole area of, of talking about how we complement immunotherapy, for example, which is relatively recent. And I'm sure that there's going to be something new on the horizon as well. How do we really keep up, you know, with, with where we're going? Because, uh, you know, there's a lot to research in integrative oncology, but I feel like it doesn't move at the same pace as conventional oncology for obvious reasons. Well, I think you hit it right on the head when you said that uh, uh, big pharma and drug companies have an outlet to m move medical approaches into the commercial field. And to a large extent, our biomedical research has counted on that outlet. So you do early pilot studies, you do basic lab work, you, you define a new drug, for example, the immunotherapy explosion, and then you sort of hand it off to the commercial sector where it then takes off. Uh, and the 
funding agencies don't have the bandwidth to run large phase three trials. They don't have the funding for that. That takes so much capital. So we are now in, a, in this difficult position where we have funding to do pilot work, but we can't take it into the uh, demonstrative phase where we would have the data we need to integrate it into practice. And that's really been one of the big limitations in integrative uh, medicine is that tons of small studies, pilot studies with 10, 20, maybe 50 patients are uh, funded and they generate interesting data, but not enough to change practice. So we either have to find a way to bring this into a commercial type of mainstream, but a responsible one, obviously, uh, or we have to have uh, federal agencies actually step up to fund large trials. And I'd say another field of medicine that has suffered the same fate is the area of preventive medicine, the area of wellness. Uh, it's very hard to do exercise lifestyle studies, to do nutrition studies uh, that get to the high levels of evidence to say we will integrate this into everything we do now. So we're in the same boat with uh, many of these um, fields as well. Yeah, I feel like um, there's definitely a role in my mind, at least, of uh, for federal funding. I feel like other countries seem to be engaging more in federal funding. I know in India, for example, there's a big push for um, you know federal funding of uh, studies in Ayurveda and yoga. Um, Canada has funded some studies on um, the use of medical marijuana, for example. So, you know, I think that for these kind of studies with preventive uh, care that doesn't generate revenue necessarily, but has impact on public health, you know, you could argue that there's really a place for federal funding in my, in my mind. And, and one thing I wanted to ask you, I mean, you touched upon prevention, you know, and you focus in your, your, uh, your clinical focus is on breast cancer. We have higher rates of breast cancer in this country than many parts of the world. Not the whole world, but many parts of the world. I know there are studies looking at um, young women from Japan, for example, who move here and end up uh, having similar rates of breast cancer as the local population here when they left Japan as adolescents, for example. So there's, there's something in the diet, there's something in our lifestyle that's contributing to this. Why do we have more cancer than many parts of the world, breast cancer in particular? Well, I think that is a complicated uh, question to answer, but there are many cancers. I would say one of the major causes is, is energy balance, is calories in, calories out. Uh, many of the, especially the rapidly rising cancers, uh, gastrointestinal cancers, GE junction cancers, liver cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, many of them are uh, due to um, uh, higher body mass, uh, less energy expenditure, it's hard to calculate exactly how much these uh, these are, but but those are um, all going up in uh, in frequency, and as you mentioned, do mirror that pattern that when people move from an area of low incidence to an area of high incidence, you see that that shift occur. Uh, and this also uh, this problem may actually harbor a solution as well. Uh, I think that uh, when you 
bring up the question of who should fund it. Should it just be governmental funding? Might the whole focus of how we fund this change this? Another big stakeholder here are employers. And you see employers now becoming much more involved in wellness programs uh, because it, it helps with absenteeism. It helps with time off work. It helps with productivity. It helps with morale. Uh, and so they are highly motivated to do this as well. Uh, and, and I think we're starting to see more of this at a grassroots level. Uh, I think the public directly is willing to do this too. And as social media and health start to merge, and as you start to see new health places online where you can go to get advice and, and treatment, you may start to see uh, some of these modalities being used more. I, I can envision where people may start paying subscription fees to, to have health advice. Uh, and instructions on how to um, access complementary and integrative techniques. You already have some of these websites that are starting off uh, that, that are based on mind-body approaches. Uh, and that may be a way that the field moves forward. You never know what the future holds and how things are going to develop over time. And I think that those of us that are in the field that uh, want it to move forward need to simply be honest to ourselves and honest to those who we speak to to say this does have value there needs to be rigor. Uh, we are committed to doing this. We are committing to, to, to teaching others how to do it. Uh, we want to get a band of interested and like-minded people to carry this field forward. And I do think it's happening. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I, I, I agree with the sentiment also that we have to really push for it and be honest about what the needs are for moving this field forward. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about the uh, some areas that you touched on with the intersection between integrative oncology and conventional care, and we can focus on breast cancer. Although many of these uh, of these risk factors uh, and behaviors influence other cancers as well, let's start with obesity and sedentary behavior. How does that uh, contribute to risk of breast cancer and recurrence of breast cancer? Uh, I don't think we fully have the story on that, but there's very strong epidemiologic evidence that uh, physical activity and uh, uh, different types of diet, mostly based on total calories, I would say, as opposed to very specific components, uh, are implicated in breast cancer. Uh, there's no randomized data. There's no. Uh, there are some randomized trials ongoing now with weight reduction. Uh, in the adjuvant setting, there's a, a large trial called the Be Well trial being run by uh, Jennifer Ligabel and uh, others that um, aims to enroll thousands of patients uh, following a diagnosis of early stage breast cancer and to see how these interventions can actually affect the recurrence risk. Uh, that will provide high levels of data. Uh, the, uh, there are several axes, uh, biological axes that are um, that relate to uh, caloric intake and that relate to energy expenditure. Uh, one of them is signaling through growth factor receptors. That seems to be a, a fairly well-established mechanism. Uh, the insulin receptor, for example, is in a family of growth factor receptors such as HER2, which is a known driver of different types of cancers. And those pathways are definitely turned on. Um, uh, a pathway known as the PI3 kinase pathway, which mediates growth, is, is turned on. And uh, we know that those are uh, activated uh, with, with higher diets and can be turned down and turned uh, significantly down regulated with weight reduction. Um, there's some data that ketogenic diets can help in that regard as well. I don't think anybody has honed it down to what very specific activities 
could cause it. Inflammation is another big factor that is related to nutrition. Um, one of the biggest epidemics that's actually quite frightening, uh, not only being seen in Western countries, but now in middle countries, is uh, the development of fatty liver or hepatic steatosis, as the scientific term is, that again is due to increased caloric intake. And uh, this causes inflammation and uh, liver inflammation from any cause, whether it's chronic hepatitis uh, and other causes, does increase the risk of liver cancer. And we're finally seeing for the first time uh, that steatosis-related inflammation in the liver is actually outpacing hepatitis as a cause for hepatocellular carcinoma. Uh, so um, this is where uh, we probably have the biggest opportunity uh, to retrain ourselves into what uh, an optimal and healthy lifestyle is. And of course, that has to start at a very young age, um, but it also has to be a cultural shift. Uh, and we do see in some areas and some pockets where the culture is such that um, uh, it, it does promote these behaviors. I'd say one of the biggest examples of a successful cultural change and legislative has been smoking cessation. I, I, I must admit, I would have not expected that the rates of smoking worldwide, particularly in the United States, would drop so much in the last two decades as they have. And we're definitely starting to see the benefits of that in terms of less lung cancer cases, less lung cancer mortality. Uh, so we need to use that model and that example where um, it's a collective social movement. Um, sometimes legislation, uh, when it's uh, appropriate, uh, has to be used to, um, to engage in, 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 in these uh, areas where we have really high levels of evidence that we can impact outcomes. Yeah, I think that smoking is a good example. I feel like there's definitely been a major shift in the U.S. especially. When I go to Europe, for example, I, I don't feel like they have gotten that message as clearly. You know, and I feel like there's still, you know, a lot of good business that the tobacco industry is doing in a lot of the rest of the world. And so, you know, I think that there's there's work to do in educating the rest of the world. I have one follow-up question regarding um, uh, obesity and, and breast cancer. How much of it is, is necessarily the weight? And can you overcome that by exercising? You know, like let's say somebody's already obese and um, they have trouble losing weight, like many people do, um, but they're exercising regularly. Is, uh, is there any data to suggest that that's preventive or is the actual weight uh, important as well? It's hard to dissect those apart. Uh, I think weight is important. Uh, we know that when people lose weight, their um, uh, glucose management changes, uh, and uh, that in itself can be beneficial. When you're constantly stimulating the insulin receptor, many things happen, including activation of different growth pathways. Uh, so uh, weight in itself is is uh, is important. The composition of diet may be important as well, but also there are so many other variables that may be genetic, may be host-related. Uh, for every enzyme we have that metabolizes things or that's involved in oxidative phosphorylation, digestion, uh, we all inherit different isoforms of these. So there's a lot of genetics in play too. Um, so what we see uh, when we do a large trial or a, a large epidemiologic study is we look at the population average. Uh, but that doesn't mean that an individual person may have a genetic constitution that for them it's just not going to be as effective, or maybe for them it's even more effective. You know, this is evident, for example, in cholesterol levels, where we know that all the uh, enzymes involved in cholesterol synthesis can can 
exist in different levels and different isoforms in people. So uh, we will probably move to a more personalized uh, medicine approach. I think this whole interest, uh, this er interesting area of social genomics, uh, where people are sending their DNA in for analysis to these companies that will give you feedback as to what it means. I think we're going to see more and more of that. Uh, some of it is not maybe as responsible as we'd like it to be in terms of the information people are getting back. Uh, but I think some of it is. It can be well curated. It can be uh, authenticated. And people can uh, go to trustworthy places where they can learn more about themselves as an individual. Um, what works for them in terms of not only dietary and physical activity, but in terms of stress reduction, in terms of uh, meditative meditation in terms of uh, uh, depression, occupying your mind, staying vital and young, staying engaged and mentally alert, all of these things that we want to do in our lives to have um, a path forward that is individualized to us and that is believable, that we can really say this is credible information and I'm going to adopt it and use it. And I think we're on the precipice of seeing this. Uh, like I said, it's going to be so hard to envision how um, health evolves and how uh, wellness and preventive medicine evolves. I, I think there are many opportunities here um, with emerging technologies to actually make this happen uh, and um, uh, to also learn and get better as we go along. Well, I want to I want to further that discussion. You know, getting back to your your uh, research in breast cancer. I mean, you were involved in a recent study published in the New England Journal of Medicine with uh, a drug called ribocyclib and endocrine therapy for patients with advanced breast cancer. And there's so many options that are becoming available thinking about precision medicine. Can you talk to us a little bit about precision medicine and not just in integrative oncology, but in oncology in general and personalizing our approach both in conventional care and where that can lead us when we talk about integrative uh, oncology as well? Well, precision medicine, as, as you mentioned, doesn't necessarily apply to only fancy genomics and immunotherapy and gene-based therapy. It also applies to uh, mind-body approaches and, and uh, diet and uh, nutrition uh, because we are all individuals. Uh, the key thing here in understanding how personalized medicine works is being able to have really large numbers. Uh, everything we've learned about um, personalized medicine has been based on very large studies where we're looking at uh, the gene sequences and the biochemistry and the variations among individuals and also having some clinical outcome data. Uh, so you have to data mine these uh, large collections of information that have been collected on patients, whether it's through a clinical trial or whether it's just through voluntary cohorts that have been set up. We've been doing cohort studies for decades, the Harvard's Women's Health Study and the Nurses Study uh, that... Um, gave us a lot of information. The Framingham Heart Study that was done in the 60s and 70s is a cohort study that taught us about the genesis of heart disease. Uh, there were some errors along the way. We, we forgot to realize that carbohydrates were important. That took us three decades to figure out. Um, but really what's, what's necessary here is that we have an infrastructure to uh, be able to study very large numbers of patients using new technology. Um, we do that sometimes with clinical trials. The trial I was involved in that you mentioned, uh, testing ribocyclib, collected tissue on patients. We, we asked patients who participated in the trial if they would give us permission to uh, get some of the biopsies that it may have been done earlier as part of their care. Uh, and to also 
uh, draw blood samples uh, at the beginning and over the course of their treatment uh, so that we could measure things like DNA in the blood and different proteins and try to learn uh, from the clinical trial. So as we get more and more of this, uh, uh, these kinds of trials done, I think it'll greatly uh, allow us to not only study what we're studying in the trial, but there's many examples of when a trial was done to study a heart drug, for example, they learned about diabetes control because they captured that information as well. The other thing that's going on, which uh, is a very welcome trend, is data sharing. People creating data warehouses where, the, where public researchers can go in and analyze the data and come up with totally new conclusions, totally new findings. And sometimes that research is done not even with needing the samples, but needing the assay results of the samples that have been kept in a large database that is now available for others to data mine. If you look at the contemporary biomedical literature right now, you will find uh, authors from China who have very little in the way of resources and equipment, but they have great minds. They've been trained in how to study epidemiology and gene analysis, and, uh, and they're taking data that has been generated from other studies and coming up with totally new ideas and conclusions. So um, when the U.S. government funds a large study, a large grant, they actually now require that you have what's called a data sharing plan. How are you, once you've done what you need to do with your data, you've published your original hypotheses and the objectives of your study have now been done and published, you now release the rest of the data for other people to do other analyses that you may not have even dreamed of doing. Uh, but it's theirs now to, to data mine. So we're going to see much more of that. And the output of that is unfathomable, I think. Yeah, I remember uh, hearing more about that at um, one of the ASCO conferences where then Vice President Joe Biden spoke and said that, you know, we need to do that, uh, you know, even even uh, amongst institutions and really trying to, to uh, get big academic institutions to share their data so that we get the numbers up to expand how and, and uh, quicken how fast we get results so that we can accelerate uh, research. That was my understanding of it. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think the wider use of electronic medical data systems is going to allow us to capture outcomes on, on patients. I've long been an advocate of the fact that Medicare, which is one of the, is basically the largest payer of healthcare on the planet, should set some requirements for uh, Medicare, both from the patients who use it, as well as from the physicians who uh, derive uh, income from it, uh, that there's a requirement that this data is used for public good while safeguarding privacy, of course, but uh, that's a huge treasure trove of information. And um, if we require that regular medical care, uh, again, with protecting patient confidentiality, can result in data that we use, the lab tests that are done, the, the outcomes of patients that can then inform us about new treatments that we can apply widely, uh, this really is a service for everybody. And I think we're developing the technological framework to do that. Well, thank you. I want to get back to uh, talking about the intersection with integrative oncology and conventional care. And you, you mentioned uh, a couple times carbohydrate intake and how important that is. I'm curious, what is your view on the effects of sugar intake and cancer? This comes up in conversation with patients, also amongst uh, colleagues. I know there is some research going on at, uh, at MD Anderson in this area. What is your view on this and, and, you know, how should we be talking about it? Yes, there are some interesting new uh, models 
that show that sugar can have direct carcinogenic effects in these models. For example, in animal models, if you feed uh, mice that are bearing tumors uh, a higher sugar diet, you see more aggressive growth of the cancer and maybe even more rapid spread. It may not be that straightforward in humans because we have many different ways to regulate our glucose, our glucose homeostasis. Uh, but there have been some human studies too, uh, to suggest that people who have high, that take in foods with higher glycemic indices may have a higher risk of cancer. Uh, the glycemic response that we have when we see carbohydrates, especially simple carbohydrates, is distinct. Uh, there's a big insulin spike and um, insulin is a growth factor. It's in the same family of, of growth factors. So when you start signaling through the insulin receptor, you can actually have a, a what's called crosstalk activation of other growth factor receptors. Uh, and it can also affect um, what's called oxidative phosphorylation, how we use glucose and other materials to generate energy. And cancer cells ha have a shift in how they use glucose. And uh, certain diets may promote that to a greater extent as well. Uh, so how it actually how the early animal studies actually translate into human behavior isn't clear the epidemiologic data with sugar intake and cancer is not as strong as what we're seeing in some of these animal models that have been reported uh, by people like uh, paying yang at our institution uh, but i think the general principle still holds and of course there's individual variation there may be some individuals whose uh, innate ability to handle glucose and the uh, enzymes that they inherited and, and other factors um, may, might make them less susceptible than others. There may be some people where that makes a really big difference. And for that person, they have to be absolutely um, careful with their sugar. So, and again, this goes into the personalization of, uh, of approaches that we take. We tend to think of personalized medicine in terms of molecular biology and some of the fancier targeted drugs, but it really applies to how we handle our diet. Uh, some people may not need to limit this, that, or the other, whereas for other people, they may get a sense that for them it is uh, very important. And we need to break that code, so to speak. There's a lot of unknown because I think, you know, from a patient standpoint, many people just kind of almost look at this as a blanket kind of, uh, you know, principle. No matter what type of cancer you have, sugar is bad for you, which obviously we don't know that. You know, I tend to think of it more often in hormonally sensitive cancers. You know, maybe there's an influence, obviously, on obesity with uh, higher sugar intake. There's some uh, links to that in, uh, in, in lifestyle medicine. I think of it when I think of poorly controlled diabetes. We know that uh, patients with breast cancer who have poorly controlled diabetes uh, generally present with more aggressive disease. And then you mentioned Peiyang Yang's study. What I found really interesting also about that study was that it wasn't just, um, you know, sucrose and high, you know, complex sugars. It was also fructose that contributed to increased tumor growth. And these things, we just don't know kind of what to tell our patients. Because if you go to any cancer center and they see a dietitian, you know, the, the standard recommendation from AACR and other um, guideline committees say, you know, five to nine servings of fruits and vegetables, you know, to prevent cancer, but also if you, if you have cancer. And I, I think there's a big unknown. I mean, our, you know, this animal study makes it look like eating a lot of fruits may not be the right recommendation. And on the flip side, there are many oncologists and dietitians who feel like just getting calories, especially if you're undergoing chemotherapy, is the main thing. 
you know, depending on whether your patient's cachectic or nauseous. And there are people who say, you know, go ahead, eat ice cream, eat this, eat that. And I think, uh, I think there's some middle ground there, but we don't really know where that, where that is. I agree with you. I, I think there are some things that are, um, I, I happen to agree with your point of view, although it's, it's hard to prove that um, fruits that have a, a high glycemic index, fructose containing, or even simple sugar containing, uh, we should be using sparingly. And again, it may be more harmful for some people uh, than, than others. Uh, so I do think that um, there may be some refinement in what the ideal plate should look like. Uh, you know, I tell my patients, uh, as complex as you can with the carbohydrates, eat low on the food chain, uh, unprocessed foods mostly. Low on the food chain actually means less sugar because sugar, uh, refined sugar, refined carbohydrates are generally not what have been available to us until the last couple of hundred years. Uh, so that's really a, a, an ideal diet to follow. Uh, but again, I, I do think that there are some people that are going to be more sensitive to others. And, and I think that we will ultimately develop some better tools to be looking at these um, uh, lipids, you know, middle, medium chain, long chain lipids, looking at different sugars, branch sugars, glycoproteins, and, and trying to make better sense of it from uh, studying um, uh, patients or even healthy subjects. Uh, so there, there's a lot of work to be done in that area to personalize uh, what we eat and turn it into a, a better science. And I see that is sort of starting already. Yeah, it's exciting. It could even be fun. I mean, you, I think you can cook well and have wonderfully tasty foods that are healthy uh, and take off in popularity for that reason. Um, but uh, we're, we're not too far down that road, but I, th I think it's coming. Um, you know, you were talking about lipids and uh, fatty liver and, you know, inflammation. And, you know, we talk a lot about inflammation. Uh, links between cancer and other diseases seem to uh, share pathways of inflammation. How does inflammation contribute to cancer and, uh, and metastatic potential of the cancer? And then even in the local tumor environment, how does influ inflammation uh, influence cancer cell growth and, and spread? Well, inflammation is a, a complicated term, and not everybody agree agrees on what inflammation really is. Um, what inflammation refers to is a whole set of biochemical processes that uh, activate different cytokines uh, that could involve the immune system. Uh, they could involve uh, other pathways, uh, reactive protein. So it's, it's a large gamish. It's a, it's a complicated network. Uh, uh, there's many natural things that cause inflammation. Um, infections can cause inflammation. Stress can cause inflammation because when we're under stress, we produce different cytokines. Uh, so uh, it really depends on, on how you define it. Uh, but inflammation has been implicated in several cancer processes as well. Uh, certain types of inflammation can suppress immunity. Uh, they can also suppress other biochemical pathways that are involved in tumor uh, suppression. Uh, they can activate dormant cancer cells. Many of us uh, have precancerous cells that are developing all the time. Cancer, after all, is survival of the fittest. So if you have a uh, a bunch of growing cells that are subjected to just random errors in DNA mutation, uh, the ones that happen to have a growth advantage, which may be a very small minority of the changes. Most changes that befall a cell, if they get a mutation, end up in their death. But 
every now and then you get one that that gives you a selective advantage. And over time, you would find it surprising that we all don't develop cancer all the time. Well, the truth of the matter is we do develop cancer cells that are propelling in the cancer direction all the time, but we have elaborate mechanisms in our body to recognize them and shut them down. Cells, for example, have a suicide pathway that if a DNA has been not quite made correctly, it, 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 it uh, activates suicide. And sometimes that can, pathway can be broken and that gives the cell a growth advantage. So uh, when th those mechanisms can be subverted by inflammation, um, and sometimes when cancer cells do develop, they lay in a dormant state. Many patients who've had early stage cancer and are going to live the rest of their lives without recurring may live the rest of their lives with a few dormant cells. There's now evidence that what reactivates those dormant cells and why some people get uh, de de develop metastases later in life and others don't um, may in part be due to uh, evasion of dormancy, which could be driven by inflammation. So there's evidence of that. Um, and uh, I, I think that the, the field of inflammation, though, uh, is is also going to mature into more discernible pathways that we can identify and understand. Right now, it's really a gamish of terms. People tend to use that word loosely. Do you measure inflammation in a clinical setting with CRP or, or other or other labs, or is that more of a, a research investigation thing right now? I think it's more of a research tool right now. I don't routinely measure it because I wouldn't know what to tell my patient to do, and I wouldn't know what level they should aim for. Uh, I do think ultimately it could be useful if we did a study. I'd, I'd love to do a study. I had proposed something a long time ago that I submitted for funding and think I've funded, but it was a, it was a study of drugs that we think have, uh, where there's epidemiologic data that they lower cancer risk, things like aspirin, statins, metformin, uh, naloxone. These are all uh, drugs that have putative beneficial effects from epidemiologic studies. And the goal was to actually do a biomarker-driven study where you treat patients with one of those for a month, and then you take them off, and then you treat another one. And you follow many indices, including CRP, including insulin, and a variety of other. And the one that seems to lower those most favorably is what the patient then stays on long-term. So you're sort of personalizing treatment to an index that lowers inflammation. But, you know, one of the weaknesses of that study is what do you do with the information? What, what, what do you tell the patient? The patient would have to understand that we don't really know what is the optimal level. We're just going to follow them over time. And then maybe in the future, based on that data, we'll have more tangible and targets for, for patients. But, but those are the kinds of studies that I think we need to do is to actually use these biomarkers prospectively and then start to understand what thresholds we should be using. So I think there's potential utility in, in, in this approach. Uh, I want to ask you uh, about the microbiome. You know, we're talking about things that modify cancer, um, things that contribute to cancer development and growth. Um, you've talked about this uh, many times, so I, I know you have uh, a lot of interest in the microbiome, and I think that's fascinating, some of the research that's coming out about how important the microbiome is and how it can modify, you know, disease, response to therapy, etc. So what are your views about the microbiome how it impacts cancer, and what we can do to, uh, to, to have a good microbiome. Well, what we're starting to learn is that the microbiome is, is an integral part of our environment. It's, it's what, what we're exposed to, just like the air we breathe and the water we drink. In, in our intestines, the majority of the mass in our intestines is bacteria. 
And what we're learning is that you can actually measure the diversity of bacteria in your bowel. Now that we have ways to sequence DNA very rapidly, that's a real easy way with a single study to say your microbiome is much more diverse than this person's. And uh, there seems to be now some data to suggest that the more diverse your microbiome is, the better your health outcomes are. And we see this most profoundly in patients who are actually getting treatment. Uh, there was a really seminal study done by uh, Jen Jennifer Wargo uh, and others uh, here at MD Anderson and many other institutions that showed that patients getting immunotherapy had very different outcomes from this. Uh, depending on the diversity of their intestinal microbiome. There's actually studies now going on to transplant one person's microbiome to another to see if someone with a more diverse microbiome can now repopulate someone else's intestine to be more diverse and actually improve their cancer outcomes. Uh, so um, we uh, recognize that there are some factors that are associated with a more diverse microbiome. One of them is eating low on the food chain, mostly plant-based uh, diets. And so these are very simple things that people can do to improve the diversity of their microbiome. Uh, but again, I, I say that with a smile on my face because it's like what I said about inflammation. You know, uh, we don't want to oversell things to people. We don't want people to change their lifestyle in a way that might cause problems when uh, we can't really say to what degree this is going to help them. I think people have to understand at this point that uh, the data is, are early and while there are some simple and easy things to do that might help, you might as well do them if you find that that is um, uh, something that your lifestyle can can accommodate. But I think it's a fascinating area, and it is going to be something that maybe we can manipulate to our advantage. It basically gives us another uh, tool, another part of our armamentarium to live better. We know that certain things can definitely can negatively affect the microbiome. For example, the, the use of antibiotics in times when they may not be necessary. And we know that in our country and many other parts of the developed world uh, that uh, we overuse antibiotics to a tremendous degree. And I think that's something that we should be focused on as well. Well, thanks for that. I, I know that uh, the institution, MD Anderson, has done a lot of research on natural products. This is a, you know somewhat controversial area in oncology because we don't have the precision that we need to know dosing or um, efficacy even for a lot of natural products. Uh, you know, spices like turmeric, for example, a lot of uh, interesting um, preclinical uh, mechanisms that sound sound good. But what are your views on, on using natural products with or without active uh, therapy like chemotherapy? Well, clearly natural products uh, can have impacts on biology. Uh, we know at very high doses, for example, you mentioned curcumin. We know that it can have some anti-inflammatory uh, properties. Um, we don't really know what the clinical effect is. We haven't done large enough studies to say how much you should take. Uh, there are some studies that suggest that um, high level of antioxidants might protect cells from cancer therapies like radiation and chemotherapy, but there's also studies that show the exact opposite. Uh, so uh, when you look at these small studies that are done in somewhat contrived circumstances and uh, different models, it's hard to synthesize a clear picture of, of what to do. I think a lot of doctors operate on the, if it might harm you, don't do it. 
Uh, so they, they advise their patients not to take supplements when they're on cancer therapies, whereas others say, wait a minute, that's, that's not right. Uh, we, we have some data to suggest that these supplements can help in these preclinical models, and why not? You might as well do it. So you have a lot of diversity as to how one might look at the same picture but come up with totally different conclusions. And I've had a lot of debates with my colleagues uh, about the merits of this. Uh, some of my uh, colleagues that I've known for a long time practice a type of oncology where they give high-dose vitamin C. They use a lot of antioxidants, and they base it on, and they're very bright and learned people who know the literature, uh, but their, their interpretation is just a little bit different in terms of um, be proactive and do something uh, as opposed to being timid and that anything you do might don't get out of bed because you might risk falling on your face uh, type approach. So um, the truth probably lies somewhere in between. Uh, again, as we started off this podcast, I think there are as many opportunities where we should do um, uh, meaningful research and track outcomes uh, of patients. And again, it's very challenging to do work with natural products. We here at MD Anderson uh, have also been a little bit conservative in terms of the clinical application of it. There's been a lot of work done in the laboratory, a lot of medicinal chemistry done, uh, but actually testing it in patients um, really requires a, a more coordinated approach where it's done as part of a network. And um, this is uh, something that societies like the SIO as well as individual institutions that have an interest in doing this should come together and and develop sort of a scientific priority of studies that are straightforward and easy to do and can be measured and have outcomes that are straightforward and that we actually do it with the numbers that will give us an answer. We don't need more pilot studies with 10 or 20 patients. We need large interventional studies that uh, uh, take the best ideas and the best preclinical data and and we move forward with that using both surrogate markers and clinical endpoints. And we may fail in these initial studies, but we will learn a lot from them because we will collect biospecimens. We will um, learn about biochemical pathways and how they're modulated. And then the next iteration will be even better. But we have to start down this road and, and build uh, this framework. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, this is an area where it really depends on who you ask and where you're practicing. The more people I ask or talk to, I, I get total variety of different answers. Um, I know MD Anderson, for example, we tend to be somewhat conservative and conventional, but we know that many of our patients are taking things, um, and that's that's been shown in multiple studies that they that patients will not always disclose whether they're taking natural products, which which is an issue. But then, you know, many patients will go see other providers like um, like naturopaths who feel very strongly that there's a role for natural products and um, they get mixed messages, essentially. And we really don't know what the exact right answer is. One of the things I find really interesting, though, you know, I'm conservative, too. And uh, if I look up um, in the natural uh, natural medicine database uh, where you, you check for uh, interactions, if there's a significant drug-herb interaction, especially even if somebody's on hormonal therapy, for example, for breast cancer, I'll stay away from it. But what I find really interesting is that as an oncologist, I am bypassing moderate interactions all the time. You know, I mean, we, we use EMR as well. And I think, um, you know, we get flagged if somebody's on narcotics and, you know, there's always some interaction between narcotics and various 
you know, anti-emetics or what have you. And I think that many of us as clinicians are not changing our practice based on that. You know, we're continuing to use the anti-emetics. We're continuing to use the narcotics. We just accept that. Whereas if there's a drug-herb interaction, we get, I, I think we're kind of somewhat biased against that particular interaction because we don't think it's, you know, we think it's a, a, an unnecessary, you know, addition to our care and we don't want anything to influence the, the chemo, which I agree with. But I, I find that very interesting because I, I in my conversations with, with oncology colleagues in particular, there's uh, sometimes very strong opinions about using natural products during conventional uh, chemotherapy. Yes, I agree. Bias drives a lot of this. Uh, there's just no two ways about this. Uh, uh, it's not unique to the field of medicine, but I think it's particularly amplified and uh, apparent in the field of medicine because patients just get so many different uh, reads from their doctors on it, and such a divergence from people that they generally trust and feel are well-read, but are taking the same body of literature and interpreting it uh, very differently. And I think here is where uh, the the need for dialogue and discourse is important is to be able to see things from each other's views because ultimately if we're going to embark on uh, a paradigm of uh, lifestyle diet uh, medicine personalized medicine all being part of how we maintain our our health wellness we all have to be talking the same language and addressing the same biases there are ways to address biases mathematically you know, statisticians do this all the time, uh, but we have to do it in a more emotional way. And uh, uh, when we, when it comes to uh, biases based on ideas, as opposed to based on other factors that statisticians deal with, but it's the same principle. Well, thank you. We have a few minutes left. I just wanted to ask you a few other things. One is um, about mentorship. You know, there are many people who I think there's a lot of interest in getting involved in integrative oncology now. And um, depending on where you are, you may not have a mentor locally. What is your view on, on mentorship for, for people in training? And if you're in an institution or a location where you don't have somebody like yourself, how do you go about getting mentorship to develop in this area, do good research you know, and is there a role for Society for Integrative Oncology or other organizations in, in bridging some of those gaps? Yes, I think mentorship is so critical, yet it's so hard to come by. It's probably one of the most precious commodities that there is uh, in general. Uh, and you can think of it at a, at a more personal level, at a familial level, you know, mentorship and family being role models growing up. But then in the professional development of what we do, if you look at the healthcare field, it's such an important component. I look at uh, the kind of mentorship and role models I've had, and, and I come to realize that there's a huge variety of methods of mentorship. Some it's just by example. You, you sort of watch your role model examine a patient and interview them, and they're not necessarily teaching you. You're just sort of watching what they do. Other times, it's a more active mentorship where you're being counseled on what, what you think works and what, what doesn't. Uh, sometimes it's more formal mentorship with di didactics, and, uh, uh, and sometimes it's group mentorship where you have a team of people helping you out. And, and we need to avail ourselves uh, of all of that. Uh, I'll tell you that... Um, from my standpoint where I'm trying to mentor a lot of people, it's incredibly time-consuming, and it's, it's also very rewarding. Uh, but 
I'm, I'm very careful who I take on as a mentor because I want to make sure I, I, I have, uh, I'm doing a good job and that I'm giving myself the time to do other things I need to do also. Uh, but therein, I think, is the, is the issue is that we, we generally have a shortage of mentorship. I think that our academic system rewards mentorship and gives it a lot of lip service. But when it comes right down to brass tacks, uh, it doesn't support it sufficiently. Uh, in terms of saying, well, if you're not bringing in this many research grants, uh, then you could mentor instead. It's never that way. You have to do both. And so um, uh, what we really need to do is is to actually have that be a part of the equation of value added and so that we organize it and systematize it in a way that as people go through different levels of learning that they have the appropriate mentorship that they have. And it's really uh, a need for allocating resources, just like you need to allocate resources to build a brick schoolyard or uh, have computers for, for children. Mentorship is, is a commodity, it's a resource, and we, we have to look at it in that way, even though, of course, at its heart, it's a much more personal thing. But in order for it to work successfully, we all have to understand that um, it's critical. Uh, it takes multiple dimensions, uh, but it's a it's a tough commodity to have, and uh, we need we need more of it for sure. Well, thank you for for helping people along the path, and you're a great example for for all of us in um, in oncology in particular, just developing in in various areas and being excellent in uh, in everything that you do. I wanted to ask one last question, and that is about the Cancer Moonshot Program. So this was initiated uh, during the Obama administration. You know, uh, MD Anderson in Houston is is really at the center of this mission. Where are we right now with the Moonshot program? You know, given the changes in administrations, uh, is that work still continuing? And do you think that there will come a time in the near future where uh, treating cancer uh, is going to be very different and our outcomes are going to be um, completely different than, than where we are now? Well, the, the Moonshot program that um, was initiated at MD Anderson was really an effort to leverage resources and work as a community to tackle really tough problems. The Moonshot program initiated by the Obama administration and championed by Joe Biden was a little bit different. It took the same name, but it had some of the same elements, particularly cooperation and data sharing and thinking outside the box. Um, while the, the federal level Moonshot program isn't active, it's more at the foundational level now in terms of sustaining small grants that uh, teach us new ways to learn, new ways to collaborate. I think it is uh, essential component that we move in a more collaborative sense. There's always going to be competition in science. There's going to be commercial competition for discovery and for patents. Um, and some some amount of that is good. It, it's, it instills creativity and, and everything. But there also has to be a common good sharing, and we have to balance those two uh, items. The common share balance really comes from a collective agreement. It comes either at the governmental level or, or very large foundations or even at the corporate level. There are some great examples of corporate um, service uh, that is well-intentioned and works well. And we need to, of course, encourage more of that. So I'm very optimistic, really, about what the Moonshop concept is, even though it may be a little bit dormant now in terms of its deployment and maturation, uh, that it needs to be a part of everything that, um, that we do. And, and just like 
people have learned civics in grade school and in high school. We need to learn uh, about sharing and collaborating and teamwork uh, and competition, all of that together. Uh, that has to be a fundamental core value that is instilled uh, very early on. And, and I think our society will greatly benefit from that. Thank you so much. And just to follow up on that, I mean, you know, I, I think that in research, at least, there are some amazing things happening in cancer treatment. Where do you feel like, I'll just focus on breast cancer, where do you feel like we're going in the next five or 10 years? Well, some of our advance is incremental, and that's good, but it's, um, it's not boundary breaking. And then some of our uh, discoveries are quantum leaps, like, like immunotherapy, and we, we welcome them both. Uh, I think that the social responsibility is that we make it accessible to everyone. I think the time from a discovery to its application to its dissemination out, uh, not only in the major medical centers but out uh, everywhere, is a part is an ethical issue, uh, and not that you can make CAR T cells available to everyone. That's just an example of technology that is simply. Uh, I see it as a bridge technology. Uh, it, it's good that we have it, but what we should be doing now is turning it into more off-the-shelf. And actually, there's work going on in that area where CAR T-cells now can be manufactured in a way that they can be transported and don't have to be individualized for a, a, a patient. So I think these are all welcome changes, but with it comes our social responsibility to make sure that we not only innovate, but that we distribute and disseminate and, and, and make it accessible. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, for everything that you're doing and for um, talking with all of us today and sharing your knowledge. And I appreciate it. And, um, you know, hope to continue learning alongside you and, and with you in the in the future. Well, thank you, Santosh. Thanks for having me. And thanks for your insightful questions and for champion, championing the, the, the podcast mechanism for, for learning. I really appreciated being here. Thank you so much. Take care.